Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. My guest this week is Christopher Melcher. Christopher is a partner at Walzer Melcher LLP, where he focuses on complex family law litigation and premarital agreements, particularly among high net worth individuals. He has 20 years of experience helping his clients navigate all the financial aspects of divorce, including tax consequences of property division and alimony, corporate laws dealing with the division of a family business, and the definition of income for purposes of setting spousal and child support. He also handles appeals of family law judgments and writ proceedings for family law orders. Before entering family law exclusively, he practiced criminal defense and civil personal injury litigation. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. Thanks for having me. So the subject of our episode today is Jack Cassidy. So Jack, although perhaps not quite as well known as his teen idol sons, David Cassidy, and to a much lesser extent, Sean Cassidy, was an American actor and singer known for his work in the theater, television, and film. He received multiple Tony Award nominations, including one win, as well as a Grammy Award for his work on the Broadway production of the musical She Loves Me. He was also nominated for several primetime Emmys. And Cassidy suffered from some fairly public mental health and substance abuse issues. In his 1994 autobiography, Come On, Get Happy, Cassidy's eldest son David wrote that he became increasingly concerned about his father in the last years of his life. The elder Cassidy, who suffered from bipolar disorder and alcoholism, was displaying increasingly erratic behavior. In 1974, his neighbors were shocked to see him casually watering his front lawn naked in the middle of the afternoon. Cassidy's second wife, Shirley Jones, described a similar incident when she found him sitting naked in a corner of their house reading a book. Jones said to him that they had to get ready to do a show, and he calmly looked up and said, I know now that I'm Christ. In the early morning hours of December 12, 1976, Cassidy lit a cigarette and fell asleep on his Nagahide couch. While asleep, he dropped the cigarette, igniting the couch. The flames threaded through the apartment and burned down the building, and he unfortunately died in the blaze. And Cassidy was married twice. The, fir- the first marriage was to actress Evelyn Ward, with whom he had son David, and the second to future Partridge family star Shirley Jones, with whom he had three sons, Sean, Patrick, and Ryan. And he and Jones separated in 1975 and ultimately divorced in 1976. After Cassidy's death, it came to light that he had not updated his life insurance documents in light of the divorce, and that Jones was still the designated beneficiary. Unsurprisingly, a fight eventually ensued over the $50,000 accidental death payout between Jones, as named beneficiary, and Cassidy's estate, which claimed the money should go to his heirs. The case eventually made it all the way to the Supreme Court of California, which, interestingly, found in favor of the estate 
explaining that Jones's designation of appellant as beneficiary was superseded as of the date the parties entered into a marital settlement agreement, which comprehensively disposed of all rights and obligations between them. So, Christopher, what are some lessons that advisors can learn from Jack Cassidy's strange circumstances? There is a ton of lessons to be learned here. And I love this this story to, to help teach us here of loose ends. Also, to see how somebody who is a celebrity and very well known back in the day, and we're talking up through the 70s, could now live in infamy because they're part of a California Supreme Court history in this case. And that's that's helped his legacy in a, in a way live on. And just in a little bit more background, why I love this example so much is that I'm, I'm a big fan of the Columbo TV series. And that's my only exposure to Jack Cassidy as an actor because he appeared there three times as a villain. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful actor and so diverse in his talent. Through my work as a divorce lawyer, I came across this case, Life Insurance Company of North America versus Shirley Jones Cassidy. That came up, some litigation that I had involving another celebrity client where life insurance was an issue. Then I read it and realized, wow, they're talking about Jack Cassidy, uh, Shirley Jones from the Partridge family, saw the circumstances of his death and how tragic that that accident was and learn more about the family. And uh, it's just interesting to me that that Jack himself would be such a well-regarded actor and then his wife, uh, Shirley, would be such a great actor and then his, their, the two children also. What happened is a loose end. The divorce lawyer who assisted in resolving the, the marital settlement agreement got that part done. Uh, all the issues in their divorce was resolved, but then no one checked the life insurance, or at least Jack didn't take care of it. And to the extent that he had estate planners, and I, I would imagine he would have, he was a successful person, that no one updated that part of his estate plan looking at the life insurance. In, in my mind, I see this a lot with, with, with attorneys, uh, we're particularly in divorce, sometimes with estate planning, we're so focused on the document, whether it's a marital settlement agreement or a trust that we're trying to get to a finish, but then we don't tie up the loose ends. And it's almost like running a race. You could do a great job running that race, but it only counts when you cross the finish line. And here they got right up to the finish line and then just stopped and didn't deal with this one issue of the life insurance policy. So he dies in 1976 and the issue doesn't get resolved until 1984. So that's eight years of litigation after a tragic death. Now this family is facing eight years of dealing with lawyers, all the expense, all the way up to the California Supreme Court simply because nobody changed a designation form on a life insurance policy. Yeah, and particularly, I mean, even in 19, mid-1970s dollars, this is only $50,000 that they're fighting over. So after eight years of litigation, one has to imagine that at a certain point, you've kind of exhausted what you were fighting over just in legal fees. 
That's that is right. And I was trying to understand who who was fighting who, because the insurance company basically just stepped aside and said, hey, there's a dispute. You guys figure it out. The dispute was really between Shirley Jones, uh, the ex-wife and the estate of Jack Cassidy. And when I read further, at least just what I could see on the Internet, that there there was apparently falling out between Jack and and his son from the prior marriage, David Cassidy, before the death, and that Jack had eliminated David from his estate plan. The heirs really were sure that the children between, or at least child between Jack and Shirley. I'm still not clear on why there would be such a dispute because you figure Shirley and Sean would be aligned. But there was there was obviously a problem between Shirley wanting the money directly and the estate wanting it to go to the estate and why she chose to fight all that and not just give up on the 50 grand and let it go to his estate. I don't know and certainly don't understand. Uh, There should be another zero or two behind that number to make any sense to me. Yeah. And this is, I mean, a pretty easy example of a blended family, right? Where if we have this fight where David doesn't, you know, is involved and maybe cut out of the will and we have his father's ex-wife who's not his mother and then we have other children who are only his half-relatives and or this or Shirley herself who has really no necessarily blood connection to David that, that to, to bind her, this is not really an uncommon fact pattern in a divorce or really in any estate. Yes. And I do a fair amount of premarital agreements. I, I really don't like premarital agreements just generally, but in the blended family, it's so important because when when somebody has children from a prior relationship and then they get married, remarried, they have an obligation to their new spouse and they also have an obligation to the children from the prior marriage. And to see a fight between the, the spouse of a deceased party and, and children of that marriage or from the prior marriage is, is got to be the, one of the worst legal disputes you could possibly have. I think through good planning, whether that's in a premarital agreement or an estate plan, is to recognize the, the dynamics of that blended family and making sure that everyone's protected because once somebody dies, they're not around to control things and guide things and self-interest takes over. Like I say, this is some of the most personal, maybe vile litigation that you could get into. So it's really interesting, actually, what you just said, because, you know, I think it's safe to say in the past on this show, when when the issue of prenuptial agreements has come up, we've been pretty pro-prenuptial agreement. But you say that you, you actually dislike prenuptial agreements. Do you mind sort of expanding on why that is? Yes, I, I guess uh, I, I like to think in a romantic way that that people should be married for love and respect and in it for life. And then when they get married with a premarital agreement, it's I do with your fingers crossed behind your back. There's a question there. Is that a full commitment? Realistically, there's people of enormous wealth or have these other complexities in their life where a premarital agreement is indicated. And I like it and in, in, in favor it in those situations. But then I've seen so many where it's just some sick manifestation of power and control. Somebody afraid that if they shared wealth with their new spouse that that 
person would leave them or that they would lack control over that other person. I've, I've just seen some of the negative aspects of it that uh, even though I built a specialty around premarital agreements, I've, I've become to dislike them. Interesting. So, so for those of us who aren't quite, you know, as experienced with prenuptial agreements, what is one of these sort of overly controlling, or I guess for lack of a better term, bad prenuptial agreements look like as compared to one where you would think it would be a little more kosher? The, the indication is you get nothing. Uh, it's a completely one-sided agreement. No property uh, will be created during the marriage, so no community or marital property, no alimony or spousal support if they break up, and a complete waiver of all surviving spouse rights. That's what the, the, the bad one looks like. To me, you know, why would anybody want to be in a marriage that, that had no protections, no benefits at all? I like to see a, a give and take, an exchange, a partnership, and to understand that each spouse brings something to this marital partnership, that they sh- there should be things shared. And when they exit or terminate that partnership, there should be some rights and protections. So in one of these situations where maybe there's a potential for power imbalance, I guess let's call it. Are there other documents or tools that you prefer to use in lieu of the prenuptial agreement, or are you just more willing to have faith in sort of the bundle of rights that marriage and divorce sort of naturally under the, under your state laws allow? Well, and that's that's a great point because we, at least in California, we, we have strong protections for premarital property in which we would call separate property that's not available for distribution or division, generally speaking. And it's only the things that are created or acquired during a marriage that would be community and divided. So somebody coming into a marriage who's maybe retired, semi-retired, with a ton of wealth, they could be married without a premarital agreement and not have any community property. So it's actually in that sense that the outspouse would would benefit by having a premarital agreement because they would know if there was a death or divorce that they would actually get something. I think that the dealing with the power and control is would hopefully be through some counseling. And if they do get presented some terrible one-sided agreement or they're arguing and breaking up during a negotiation over a prenup, that should be a good sign that this is not the right relationship. Coming back off our small prenuptial agreement tangent here and getting back to sort of the, the Jack Cassidy story, you mentioned that this whole thing sort of revolves around a loose end that planners sort of neglected to tie up. And in this case, it was a life insurance policy. What are some of the typical loose ends you see that, that get overlooked in, in situations of divorce where they're not tied up? The bank account, survivorship rights, beneficiary designations or survivor designations on retirement accounts. We're trying to you know, encourage the client to, to go through look at all those things, go to the bank, change the, the survivor beneficiary designations, uh, same with the retirement account. Those are some of the obvious ones. Obviously, the life insurance, in addition to that, from the Cassidy example, the deeds on property, they may have a judgment or a marital settlement agreement that awards some real estate to one party, but then they, they never change the title. 
and then maybe it's joint tenancy and one dies. And now we have this huge dispute. What I've done in my documents as a divorce lawyer is that uh, I kind of anticipate that people are going to have a Cassidy problem. So I have language in there that says that any failure to update any of these designations or estate plans, trusts, was all unintentional and that our intent was to disinherit the other party and that they should get nothing. And if that surviving party winds up with something from my client, that they hold it in trust and to pay over to my client's estate. That's I learned that from Cassidy and having some saving language in there. Because if, if you ever read the life insurance company in North America versus Cassidy case, you'll see there was a an opinion by another justice, Justice Byrd, who would have given the policy to Shirley Jones and was not convinced that the uh, divorce was sufficient in indication of intent uh, that she should not receive that life insurance benefit. And had Judge Byrd prevailed in the California Supreme Court, uh, surely would have gotten the money. So that's why I have that express language in there saying, hey, we're, we're divorced and we don't want each other getting anything from the other in the event of a death. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point to bring up too, because you know, in my opinion, that is the more intuitive interpretation as, as sort of if I were a layman that or a client, then you know I would think it would work that way, right? Like, okay, well, I'm not specifically disinherited somewhere and this designation is made out to me just because we're divorced doesn't implicitly mean that I get nothing ever. That's that's how at least I would think as as one of the parties to this if I you know, weren't a lawyer. So I think this highlights the importance of with a role advisors and lawyers can play and sort of, you know, hey, listen, this is how this works. And, you know, make sure that the clients are apprised of exactly how these designations work when they divorce, what that means, so that everyone has is going into this with full knowledge. That's right, because we can't ask Jack what he intended. It's just reading tea leaves. Did he intend for Shirley to, to get this money on the event of his death? And if you we look back at the history that, uh, at least again, it was reported on the Internet, is that he reached out to Shirley the night before he died to ask her to dinner. And she declined. So it's within really hours of his death, he, he wanted to go to dinner with her. Maybe Justice Byrd's interpretation wasn't so wrong. Anytime we're asking a judge to, to read the tea leaves and figure out what uh, a dead party intended, we're, we're in trouble. We have to, I think our role as advisors is to anticipate a Cassidy problem and think that they're, number one, we should get them to finish those loose ends. But then on top of that, we should anticipate they're not going to follow our advice and then put in some saving language like I have in my divorce judgments that say, hey, if we mess something up, didn't cross that T, that was unintentional. So one interesting thing, does what you do or how you address this problem change at all in the instance of sort of the increasingly common instance of sort of multiple divorce? Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's definitely, you know, serial uh, spouses. <laughs> there, there could be obligations that are, that are in a judgment from divorce one that remain into marriage two. Life insurance is, is kind of a common protection that that a spouse would receive in a divorce to make sure that money's available to replace support if their former spouse were to die. We're looking at these provisions to make sure that 
in marriage number two, whether we're doing a prenup for that person or we're getting them divorced a, a second time, that we're aware of what their obligations were from their prior spouse. We're just about out of time here, but let's try to, as I like to do and put, put my guests on the spot a little bit, is uh, try to take a very complicated, broad topic and, and really just tie it up with a nice little bow in a way that's absolutely impossible. If there's one lesson to take away from this Cassidy situation for advisors, what would that lesson be? The, the lesson is tie up the loose ends. We're running a race. It doesn't count until you cross the finish line. Make sure you finish that race and then anticipate that your client's not going to follow your advice and try to have some backup provisions in there so that the court has no question about what the intention was if there was unfinished business. So that's about all the time we have for this week. I'd like to thank Christopher Melcher for just being a fantastic guest. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.